setting limits with others, especially in high-conflict situations where they're needed more than anywhere, or actually in any uncomfortable situation, is hard for most people. So we've created a place to learn how to do it in our virtual live lab, where you'll meet live one-on-one with one of our coaches to learn how to set limits. We'll use some of our own scenarios, and if you want, we can help you learn to apply them in your unique situation as well. It's a small investment with significant positive outcomes for you and for everyone involved in the situation. Schedule your live lab at highconflictinstitute.com slash live dash lab or call us at 619-800-2070. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you understand and increase your effectiveness with someone who may have a high conflict personality. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy, along with our special guest today, Doug Knoll, who um, was on our show last week. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, Bill and I are the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. At HCI, we provide training, consultation, and educational programs to clients all across the world. In today's episode, we are going to continue the conversation with Doug Knoll, who is the founder or co-founder of the Prison of Peace Project. If you haven't listened to the first of this two-part series, you'll want to go back and listen to it because it's just fascinating and you'll get to hear the rest on today's episode. Uh, But first, a couple of notes. If you have a question about a high-conflict situation, send it to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or on our website at highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast, where you'll also find the show notes and links. And please give us a rate or review and tell your friends, colleagues, or family about us, especially if they're dealing with a high conflict situation. We're very grateful. Now I'd like to welcome back Doug Knoll, co-founder of, of the Prison of Peace Project, and we are ready to just dive right in. So welcome back, Doug. One of the things I want to just ask about for a couple of minutes is your focus on skills is so important that skills can be learned even by people the kind of history you're talking about. Now, we talk a lot about high conflict personalities, people who blame others a lot, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions, extreme behaviors. And the question is always, Can they change or can't they change? And from what you're saying, you've really helped people change. And I wonder if you could say something about, do you think that these changes, it's because of the the particulars of your program, do you think that they really, in many ways, are probably, you know, seen as incorrigible and yet they can learn skills. Just just your thoughts about how people can change and who can change. Did some people never change and other people really change for good? Almost every person has the ability to change and grow. Of all the thousands of students that we've taught in Prison of Peace, we've only kicked one person out. Mm. And that was after giving him three years of opportunity to succeed. And he was a, an overt maladaptive narcissist. And he just could not learn these materials. He, there was something really wrong with him. He's functioning. He was a functioning person, but not, not socially functioning well. 
I think, based on my experience and my, and my research, uh, you know, we all know our brains are highly, there's a thing known as neuronal plasticity or brain plasticity. It's the ability to change, the brain can literally rewire itself. I've witnessed this happen over and over and over again. Um, I'll just tell you a quick story how we, 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 we were our six, for the first five weeks at Valley State Prison for Women back in April and May of 2010. We went in and these women were dark black thorns. They were polite, but they, and they were not disrespectful, but they were suspicious, sullen, shut down human beings. We come in on week six and they're laughing and smiling. And instead of black thorns in the room, we have beautiful roses. And what just happened? Well, what happened was they'd been listening long enough and ethic labeling long enough and listening to emotions long enough to get in touch with their own humanity. And it only took them six weeks to make that transformation. And we thought that was pretty amazing. Well, it turned out that with every cohort that we taught, whether men or women, it was that five to six week period where the stuff started sinking in and we began to see the major transformations in the personalities of the people we're working with. It's just because we take the time to teach them. We're all about the how. We don't tell them what to do. We tell them how to do it. And we we work with them and practice with them and role play with them until they get the how done. And then we tell them, go out and practice this. And they're really resistant to practicing because it's very different. But then they do it. And then they grow and they change. And then everybody else around them sees the growth and change. And so, for example, at BSPW, six weeks into the program, we had 800 women on the waiting list to take the training. I was over a, a, about a quarter of the population of the prison. Wow. It's a really strong argument for intensive training in skills, in social skills, and that, and that what we do is doesn't have an environment that necessarily reinforces from learning skills from each other, which seems like an important ingredient. But also it seems, you know, when I think of us, conflict divorces or workplace coaching that that it's the lack of intensity that may make it really hard for some people to learn but also to me this is so encouraging because people just tell people stop doing what you're doing and do it different it's like (laughs) alcoholic just say no you know yeah that doesn't work intensive training can work and your program is just so encouraging because it proves that people in the hardest circumstances can learn and they learn from each other, it sounds. That's right. Um, the state published a study years ago that showed that for every dollar invested in good rehabilitation programs, the state saves a thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. And yet the le- legislature, less than one percent of the total budget of the State Department of Rehabilitation, uh, uh, corrections and rehabilitation is devoted to rehabilitation, less than 1%. Not surprising. I'm, I'm wondering too about the, uh, if some of the success comes from just having someone pay attention. Yeah. You know, I think that's true. One thing we have learned, and this is, this is something we have to imbue in all our, our trainers is that you have to show up. What our students, incarcerated students really appreciated was for the, for many of them, we were the first people that we did exactly what we said we were going to do. And we always showed up. You know, the only time we wouldn't show up is if we were sick, because we're not going to take illness into the prison. But one of us was always there. In fact, there were times when we would show up and the yard would be locked down for one reason or another. Nobody bothered to call us. We'd drive two hours to a prison, 
oh, you can't get in today. It's locked down because we're giving everybody flu shots. Well, how long was that scheduled? I was scheduled two weeks ago and nobody bothered to call us. No, we're sorry. <laughs> Run in your car and drive home. It happens. But you, but, but we got word in to the, to the guys that, Hey, we're outside. We can't get in because of the lockdown, but just want you to let you know that we're here. And when they hear that, we went to go the extra mile to be there for them. Yeah. That builds a lot of trust. And we, and they know we believe in them and that, and that gives them hope. Yeah. And I mean, how fascinating to think that, you know, some of these folks are going to get out at some point and they're going to be parenting children. Most of them will get out. And many of them do have children. Yeah. I, I need to share a story. Great. <laughs> so one of the first women we taught was, was quite young. Eventually she got out. We, she turned out to be a great leader, but she got out, got married, has two kids. I think they're five and six years old now. And, and Laurel is like her second mother. And one day she, she called Laurel and said, Laurel, can my husband bring the kids over? And can you just, they be with you for the day? I just need time by myself. And Laurel, of course, was thrilled and said, yeah, absolutely. Well, what Laurel reported to me was when the kids were playing in her backyard, they were all affect labeling each other. <laughs> five and six years old, you're angry, you're mad. And she told me that story and we both just started beaming. That's <laughs> <laughs> what really wanted to ha happen. Anna took the skills that we taught her, developed them, and now she's passing it on to her children. Yes, that my point exactly. This is this is the real deal. It, the the ripple effect it just goes on and on and on, and it it's just you know when when Bill and I started High Conflict Institute together in way back in two thousand eight, uh, he came up with the slogan, you know, let's give people a chance to change. Right. And that's what this program does, and it's 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 successful, and it's the it's the right formula. Right, it works. It works. It's exciting because you know, as I, you probably don't know this about me, Doug, and Bill's probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but I like to pretend that I have a PhD in reality television. <laughs> I talk about it on a lot of episodes. Uh, I don't watch so much anymore, but I've watched a lot, and you see the trauma. You see, you know, across the, all of the different shows, um, whether they're you know, Real Housewives, um, living you know in, in the highest income areas and having the luxury lifestyle, to the shows where they do go into the prisons, and and you, you see there's this trauma behind it and this lack of skills and um, I, I recall watching the show I think it's 60 days in where undercover people go into jails and um, and you know kind of pretend to live this other life and it's it's just really fascinating to get this peek into how uh, inmates are treated I guess and and there are probably some who think well they deserve it that they're there and you know and all that but why not give them a chance to change I tell my more conservative friends that, you know, we spend more money in California prisons than we spend on the entire university system. Yeah. Wow. I said, is that really the best use of our taxpayer dollars? You know, what if we could, what if we could think of, think through what our criminal justice system is really all about? And instead of getting into a retribution mode, get into a transformation mode because the people that go through the retributive system, which is our court system, I tell people murders are not born, they're bred. Yeah. And we can we can fix we can't fix it all, but we can fix a lot of it. And that kind of falls on deaf ears because it, you, know, you don't get elected to being dog catcher or Clovis, California, unless you have a endorsement by the Deputy Sheriff's Association. Right. <laughs> Even though dog catching has nothing to do with the criminal justice system. But it's just that politicians get elected on fear and the fear of crime. And, and 
lock them up in three strikes. You know, that's the interesting about, about the region I live in is it's the birthplace of the three strikes laws. And it's also the birthplace of the international restorative justice system movement. Both started in Fresno, California. It's kind of like a race, I think, between punishment and transformation, like you're saying. And, and it's like neck and neck. We know what to do and what you've done really demonstrates it can with the hardest people or the most damaged people. And yet the, the media image is all about being tough guys. Well, think about it. I mean, the media, what I've learned, and I, you guys know this too, is that the media hates peace. They hate peace. It's boring. It's boring. boring. It's boring. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't increase the checking account at all. That's, that's why there's, not, there's no reality mediation shows. Right. Mediation kills conflict. It was one, but it, it didn't, it didn't last two seasons. And because mediation and peacemaking and resolving conflict is private, slow, and very boring to watch. There's not, a, and the idea is to keep the drama out of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it works. And, and, so, and, and it, it works. works. And, and if it, it works. works, then, then where's the show? <laughs> right. And so, so the media has no interest. We have turned down dozens of requests from Oprah producers to do something on prison of peace and we're not going to do it because um they're going to exploit it and and we we don't want that exploitation and i applaud you for that because i firmly believe it will grow without oprah for being on oprah i mean it, it will yeah i'd rather have it grow organically and people learning about it than than otherwise and it, we're not we know this is thing what our worry is going to grow too fast over the next couple of years right we don't have the infrastructure to support it because we're it's a small you know small nonprofit so yeah oh you're going to have to get together with some business schools and get some some interns and (laughs) we need money probably more than anything else yeah and a grant writer yeah (laughs) for sure but i think you know we're working on our our, how we're going to do this, our model, our business model for doing this. So we'll, yeah. figure, we'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, that, that's, that, those are just another problem to be solved, and I'm sure it'll be solved really well. It's a good problem. But to Bill's point, and to your point, Megan, you know, we can train people. I don't care how incorrigible they are. If they want to learn, here's the key. they got to be motivated. Our, people self-select into prison of peace. They do not, they're not forced into it. They, they, it's something that they have to do. And when we do our very first orientation, uh, we try to scare them away because we only want the ones who are really feel drawn to it, who really the whole idea of being a peacemaker, something in it grabs them in their hearts and they're going to stick through it because it's a, it's a tough curriculum. We teach at the graduate level. We don't coddle and we're very strict about homework and people cheat. and We, we don't accept that and they copy work. We don't accept that. We, we watch what we see it. Um, we don't let anything get past us. That's about setting limits and and consequences and accountability and part of what that's part of what we hear back is thank you for being so strict and accountable it's the first time in my life anybody has ever held me accountable to anything Mm. do you use the word consequences at all or do you stick with accountability accountability you have to be accountable to yourself i like that we're going to hold you to that because there's a ton of homework i mean we work their butts off yeah Keep them busy. Well, Bill, Bill has the, teaches that skill, too, about keeping people busy with tasks and keeping them thinking, right? Yeah, because feeling, if you can drown in your feelings, but if you learn what to do, and if you can acknowledge and give each other. So when we do empathy, attention, and respect, we give empathy for what we see they're feeling. We, I see your frustration, and I can hear your disappointment. 
many years ago, I guess it was. <laughs> is that, two decades. <laughs> that we we ended up in the same place really about empathizing with what people are feeling and that's it's right different from opening up what they're feeling we're not oh you know oh you're so sad pour your heart out to me because that's where people drown instead of learning problem solving skills well we know from the Lee, all the lieberman studies there have been nine of them now that that when you reflect back what somebody else is feeling. You say something like, oh, you're really sad, you're upset. You know, you're frustrated, you're anxious. When we label their emotions, that causes the transformation in the brain. And that's where, that's where the power is. And learning how to do that in the right way and learning how to watch for the physiological responses that occur un- unconsciously and involuntarily is part of the skill of learning how to use these de-escalation techniques. I'm inspired. I just yeah, great. <laughs> I knew you would be, Bill. As soon as I heard him talk about the prison program, I got excited. So, Doug, what's the most gratifying part of being involved in this and, and having started it? And I mean, you, you guys took a hard path. But Bill and I took a really hard path as well. And it's funding thing, you know, the whole everything yourselves and and just working so hard and so many hours and barely making any money. But what is it inside you that is you know, you see that gratification. Well, it's getting the letters from from our students who, and the thanks, the thank yous that we get, the gratitude that we get. Yeah. And watching people who have been basically thrown away by society and having them express gratitude at, at these basic skills and how they have been able to transform their lives and transform the lives of their relationships with their families. Uh, and when they get out, become extraordinarily successful people in their communities because they've got skills that nobody else has. Right. And, uh, you know, it's in knowing that we're making a difference. Absolutely. It's, (laughs) it's fantastic. Um, So kind of uh, switching a little even further into, to you and your work, what, what drew you to this profession of peacemaking and, I, I know there's got to be a story here. Yeah, well, okay. I'll try to keep this as quick as I can. But it spans two, uh, it spans four, almost five decades. Uh, so, I, as I said before, I, was, I grew up in San Marino. I was born in San Marino. Um, but unfortunately, I was born with a lot of disabilities. I was born partially blind, two club feet, partially deaf, left-handed, bad teeth, um, a lot of problems. I turn 72 tomorrow. Ah, happy birthday early. Really? Happy birthday. And in those days, my parents didn't know what to do with me, really. So essentially, I developed arrogance to cover up at a very young age. I developed arrogance to cover up all of the wounding that I suffered. Of course you did. But the other thing that happened was that I, have a, I have obviously have a very sharp mind. And so I was smart, arrogant and smart. Ugh. And then thick, in the fourth grade, finally, somebody had the good sense to test my eyes took them that long and found out that my vision was 2,400. And so they gave me Coke glasses, right? Coke, Coke bottle lenses. And oh, right. Nerd, nerd glasses before it was cool. It was a buzzkill for the girls. My social life growing up was horrible. But I jumped two grade levels in one summer. And ultimately, I, was, I, I applied to and was accepted to Dartmouth College, studied English literature, graduated with honors, well, with, um, did well with distinction in English. And Came back to California. In those days, if you didn't go to med school, you went to law school. So I went to law school. And without really intending to, 
knowing whether I wanted to be a lawyer or not. I did well in law school, clerked for a judge for a year, and then ended up in private practice. And I tried, I joined the firm, my firm in September of 78, tried my first jury trial in November of 78. And my second jury trial was a defense of a $36 million securities fraud case in San Diego in federal court. That's how my trial career started. I did that for the next 22 years. In the 80s, I picked up, and this is where the shift occurred. I picked up, I started studying martial arts when I was 34, 35 years old, and eventually was awarded my second degree black belt. And at that time, my teacher told me to go start studying Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. This is in 1990, so I just turned 40. Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. The more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. And this was completely opposite of everything that I'd learned about how to survive. You had to be tough and strong and, you know, stoic and push through everything. And life's a struggle. And Tai Chi was completely the opposite. So as I studied Tai Chi and began to understand it and began teaching Tai Chi, I assimilated these paradoxes until one day I was in a courtroom and I cross-examining somebody, I thought to myself, what the heck am I doing in here? After that trial, I had a vacation planned, a, a river trip. So we, with a bunch of friends, we went up to loaded the main salmon, Whitewater River. And I spent the week thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial over 22 plus years and concluded that I'd really only served five people and decided that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go another 20 or 30 years and serve maybe 15 people. People that really came out of the system better off than going in. So interestingly, when I got back from that vacation, I was driving down out of the mountains to my office and I heard what turned out to be the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University. And to make a very long story short, I enrolled and was accepted. And for three years in the late 90s, I was a full-time master's degree, a three-quarters time law professor and a full-time trial lawyer. It was just a little bit crazy. Uh, and my partners and I began to have discussions about what I was going to do with all of this. And I knew I didn't want to try cases. I said, I'll try cases while I'm studying. But when I'm done with my master's degree, I'm not going to try any more cases. And they hated that because I was the second largest money earner in the firm. So finally, in 2000, October of 2000, here, this is October of 2022, 22 years ago, almost not quite to the date, 20, uh, 20, it was the end of October, the managing partner of the firm, who was my peer, we both graduated from law school the same year, uh, came into my office and said, you're not getting any more paychecks until you stop this peacemaking shit. <laughs> and I said, oh, is that so? And that was on a Friday. I went home with my, married to my first wife at the time, and we kind of talked about it. And I came back in at eight o'clock on Monday morning. And I said, I quit. Here's, I don't want any more paychecks. Here's my credit cards, my keys, my everything. And that Friday I left, I left 10 million bucks on the table. And on November 1st, started my mediation and peacemaking practice. I did it. And it took, wasn't like you could flip a switch from a trial lawyer to a peacemaker. You know, you, it, it was a huge growth process that I had to go through. And it took, took a long time to go through that growth process. But it, you know, and the Prison of Peace Project, I think, was a, a big part of that. Wow. And I help more people today in a week than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. So that answers the final question. You know, what is what it you know, what gives you the greatest satisfaction? I mean, and that's that's it. You're serving so many people. The meaning of life to me is serving humanity. 
in, and, and I tell people, you don't have to be a Mother Teresa. You don't even have to be a Doug Noel. I mean, people pull me up and say, well, what a great thing prison peace is. And yeah, it's a good project. It's my legacy. But you don't have to do anything that, like that. All you have to do is learn how to listen people into existence. And every time you listen to someone into existence, you throw a little pebble into the pond of peace and it spreads out a ripple. And the more people that are throwing pebbles into that pond of peace, the larger the pond becomes. Yeah. Until eventually we have peace all around us. And so you can make a huge difference and create meaning in your life just by how you behave around people and listing them into existence every single day. I just think it's great that you've taken the skills you've learned along the way to really help so many people. So congratulations. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Well, Doug, this has just been fascinating. Uh, like Bill said, uh, your, your work is just tremendous. It's fascinating. It's it's so helpful. And uh, we just want to thank you, you know, for the work that you do to bring hope to people who need it the most. And the ripple effect that it has on society and communities and individuals. And as you mentioned, this will have a ripple effect when um, inmates who are released can go out and parent their children and, and teach, them, teach, teach them these skills. So it's very exciting to me. So thank you again. Thank you. You'll find a link to the show notes to Doug's website and uh, Prison of Peace uh, in, in those show notes and also links to his books will be there as well. So we are very grateful to have had Doug with us. And next week, we'll be talking more high conflict. In the meantime, please send your questions to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or submit them to highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. And please tell all your friends about us. And we'd be grateful if you'd leave a review wherever you listen to our podcast. Until next week, have a great week and keep learning about high conflict behavior and practice all the skills so you can help everyone find the missing piece. It's All Your Fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at truestory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Thank you.